Let's pray. If you would bow your heads. Once again. Lord, we sang a song that says, I need you. And perhaps more than anybody else in this room right now, I need you. I ask that you would would speak through me to edify this local church. I simply ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you get your Bibles out this morning, turn to Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 19. While you're getting there, I have to again confess to you how naive I am. I think I get it after all these years of being a pastor. I had this nice little schedule planned out of how I was going to take us up through this certain point, cover this much of the book of Acts. And then I get to chapter you know, 7, because that was originally in my stupidity, and I'm going to say that in a funny way, but try to preach through chapter 6 and 7 in one sermon. Um, that was wishful thinking. And I thought, okay, I can get through chapter 7. Well, it's 60 verses. Um... And we're going to barely scratch the service even this morning, so we're going to get to the first 19 verses. And if I went through the entire chapter and gave that chapter its due attention, we would be here for probably close to two hours in a sermon. I don't want to preach that long. I can't hold your attention that long. I'm not that good. And you don't want me to preach that long. But let's look at the first 19 verses of Acts chapter 7. And instead of me reading it, I had the Sunday school class read about six chapters in Genesis of the life of Joseph. They're going to understand here in a moment. I'm going to ask the lovely Robin Wessel if you just stand up and could you read the first 19 verses, face the crowd, and just read those if you would. Okay. 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 That's okay. Chaldeans. Huh? Chaldeans. Thank you. 
Yep, very good. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Robin. Very good. Thank you, Robin. On the, <laughs> on the uh, spur of the moment there. It was interesting during the prayer meeting. It was a very little prayer, but we just read the Word of God, and I thought it was interesting to sense the, the movement of the Spirit through the reading of the Word of God during our Sunday morning prayer meeting. But last week, in our study of ongoing study of the book of Acts, Luke introduced us to one of the most influential men in the history of the church. A man whose ministry was so short, yet it was incredibly impactful. Well, how impactful was Stephen's ministry? It is doubtful. Just consider this. If any one of us would be here without his ministry. God in his sovereignty raised up a man who would be the catalyst of taking the gospel to the world. And his name is Stephen, and he's described as a man who was with a good reputation in the church, full of the spirit and faith and wisdom and grace and power. And the Holy Spirit was working so powerfully through his witnessing that opposition arose and accused him of blasphemy. Now, we find this in Acts chapter 6. Remember this verse from last week? This is what they accused him of. He had basically had blasphemed God, Moses, the holy place, meaning the temple, which is considered holy and sacred in the eyes of the Judaists, and the law. That was the accusation that was brought before him through false witnesses and false accusations. Just so you know, God, Moses, the law in the temple, that is what was most sacred in the mind of any Jew. So Stephen is brought before the council. It had been the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and some Pharisees, and so on. The high priest and whatnot. In a mock trial, full of false witnesses and false accusations, follows. Now you may remember what was Stephen's ministry from last week. The gospel was first to go to where? Jerusalem. And there was almost 500, between 480 to 500 local synagogues in Jerusalem. Many of them foreign speaking. And he would go to these foreign speaking synagogues and preach the gospel. And it's at one of these synagogues this incident happens. And so he's brought before the council, and after hearing these false witnesses and false accusations, the high priest says, are these things so? We just read that. That's another way of saying, how do you wish to plea? How do you wish to plea? 
either guilty or not guilty. And so Stephen begins his defense with a very bold sermon. And if you spend any time reading Acts chapter 7, you will be, quite frankly, I think, taken back by how bold Stephen is. In fact, today in our dysfunctional culture, we would say that Stephen was offensive. I mean, he was just being bold, boldly speaking the truth. But before, and this is what I, I stumbled into, that is the reason why um, I had to take two Sundays to, just to get through chapter 7. I have to introduce to you a theological concept. It's really an a, a, a interpretation tool. That if you're really going to understand the Bible in its fullness, you're going to have to understand this. It's, it's all throughout the Bible, but it's what is called this. Have you ever heard this word before? A type of Christ. And if you haven't, that's fine. I didn't go over it in the uh, How to Study the Bible for All It's Worth. But it's what is called a type of Christ. I have to train you in this real briefly because you really want to understand the depth and the breadth and appreciate the Stephen's bold sermon. We have some examples of this, for example, in the New Testament. This is Romans 5.14, Paul writing, saying, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like this transgression of Adam, who was what? He's a type of the one who was to come. So Adam was a type of who? Well, let's find out who that was. Probably Jesus. If you don't know the answer anything in the New Testament, you always just say what? Jesus. <laughs> okay. So Adam was a type of the one who was to come. First Corinthians says this. Thus is written, again Paul writing this, a different letter to a different church. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Well, who is that? Well, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Pretty obvious who that is. And we see this verse here as well. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what we're summarizing in these three verses is this, to give you an understanding of what it means in the phrase, a type of Christ. Adam was the head or the representative of the human race. Our, or humanity's, eternal destiny depended upon his obedience. You see that there? Now Christ is the representative or the head of his people. Our Christians, believers, eternal destiny depended upon his obedience. So Adam and Christ were similar in that each one single act affected their offspring. The first Adam, the literal physical Adam in Genesis, he affects his offspring for what? Death. While the last Adam, Jesus Christ, affects his offspring by giving eternal life. Now, the relation between Adam and the Messiah for the Jew was recognized and kind of universally understood. Because they called, Jews did in this time, 
their deliverer or their Messiah, the last Adam. Another type of Christ would be a lamb. You have a lamb that was slain for what? The reminder of your sins. John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus at the river, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So a lamb is a type of Christ, a picture of Jesus Christ. You follow me so far? That's what a type of Christ is. So with that behind us, let's break down Stephen's masterful sermon. And remember, there are four accusations. God, he blasphemed God, he blasphemed Moses, he blasphemed the temple, and he blasphemed the law. He will defend himself in this sermon. So let's start off with talking about God. Look at Acts 7, verse 2. This is his beginning. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. For the class that we just came from, the Sunday school, Stephen recognizes his audience and begins with an introduction that will hold their attention. Say, well, what in the world does that have to do with that sentence? Brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Because Stephen began his defense by talking about the Jews' favorite subject, their history. They loved to hear someone recite their own history to them. Even to this day, the Jews believe that their salvation lies in their inheritance, which comes from their history. Basically, that means that because they are physical descendants of Abraham, they were saved. They were good with God. And that they would inherit the kingdom of God. And so with this first statement, Stephen establishes that he believes in God. Because he had been accused of what? Blaspheming God. And by calling God the God of glory, he begins with, the greatest statement that you could say about God. This was spirit-led, strategic preaching. And he says the God of glory. Now, the glory, when speaking of God, it's the fullness of the manifestation of all that God is. Or the totality of all of his attributes. So we will say God is love, or God is just, or God is graceful. He is full of holiness, God is wise, righteousness, power, all of that. All the attributes of God are summed up in one word, glory. And so Stephen just kind of pulls all of the totality of who God is into one name, and he would have called him El Hakvad, which means the God of glory. And this was what the council, quite frankly, probably wanted to hear. God is everything that could possibly possibly be true of his character. Now, there's something else going on here, and you might remember this from last week. I don't want you to forget Acts chapter 6, verse 15. And if you're there, turn in your Bibles back to that last chapter, and it says, actually it's only a few verses back, And gazing at him, meaning the council, all who sat in the council saw that his, meaning Stephen's face, was like the face of an angel. Stephen had what on his face? Remember that from last week? 
the glory of God. And whenever the glory of God rests on somebody, it is a sign of what? His approval or favor. Exactly. So here is Stephen. He is kind of lit up like a Christmas tree with the glory of God. And he is just referred to who? The God of glory. And so Luke, who wrote Acts, is saying that Stephen is subtly implying to this council, God has set his approval on me. I have been accused of blaspheming God, but in reality, guess what? God approves of me. And this is a very powerful point. Because I think that that's where part of the boldness of Stephen comes from. And so with this first statement, Stephen also establishes that he believes in the fatherhood of Abraham over Israel. By using the phrase, our father Abraham, Stephen identifies as a Jew and acknowledges that the foundation of Israel, it came from God through the faith of Abraham. And they would have loved to hear that. And so, so far, so good with what Stephen is saying. In the rest of Stephen's defense, he will show how God controlled the destiny of Israel as it is God's chosen nation. He even refers to the physical sign of a Jew. And what was the physical sign of a Jew? Circumcision. See that in verse 8? He gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Physical circumcision was so important to a Jew because they viewed it as a, a way of meriting God's favor. It guaranteed them eternal life. Are you with me so far? Okay, good. So he defends himself. Let's talk about Joseph now. A type of Christ. Those that came to the Sunday morning prayer time. I think you're going to get probably more out of this because you just read the story of Joseph. After the sermon, go back and read the story of Joseph. I think you'll get even more out of what I'm about to say. But Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a picture of Jesus Christ. Watch how this plays out. In verse 9, Stephen introduces Joseph. Joseph was a patriarch. What's a patriarch? For those of you who don't know, it's one of the twelve sons of Jacob, who was later called Israel. And the Jews, and you need to hear me on this, they held the patriarchs in high esteem. Because it was through Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac and the Jacob, and Jacob and the twelve sons, and so on, that they claimed their inheritance. So the patriarchs were holy and sacred in the mind of a Jew. Now, do you remember the story of Joseph? One point I do want to remind everybody of that I had learned about. I had read this and it just didn't click, but it did and I, so I prepared this sermon. It's about Joseph's story is this. The firstborn son of Jacob was who? Reuben. Who forfeited his birthright. And it was given to Joseph. We see it here, I think, in 1 Chronicles 5.1. 
in the reading of the, of the line of the Messiah, says the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and look at what's in quotation marks or parentheses, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to who? Sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, I believe it was. How did he defile his father's bed? Well, he lay with his father's concubine, Bilhel. It's recorded in Genesis 35:22. So the birthright, the blessing of the birthright, is no longer with Reuben. God gives it to Joseph. And in Genesis 37, I'm going to read this for you here. You're going to, I want you to understand why God is giving these dreams to Joseph. One of the reasons. This is Joseph talking. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Says they hated him even more because they clearly saw that Jacob favored Joseph. Because Joseph's mother was who? It was Rachel, right? And he loved, Jacob loved Rachel, but Rachel had died. Two sons from Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. He showed favoritism. He gave him that coat of many colors. The other sons didn't like it. Verse 9, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous or envious of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. These dreams, folks, are God revealing to Jacob and his brothers, or Jacob's sons, that he was setting Joseph apart as the leader to bear the progeny or the right of rule in the family. Because the birthright had gone from who? Reuben to, to Joseph. Then what did Joseph's brothers, the patriarchs, that the Jews, even to today, hold in high esteem, what did they do to Joseph? Out of envy, and the keyword there is envy, sold him into slavery. They saw him coming from afar, and before him, Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And check this out. Talk about being cold-hearted. What did they do? They sat down to eat. 
And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judas said to his brothers, again, look at these people, these patriarchs. What profit is if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Why kill him? We can make money off him. Then many night traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Joseph? Yeah. Now, God was with Joseph and blessed him. We don't have time to go through the entire story, but God would eventually deliver Joseph out of prison. From this story, he goes and he is bought by Potiphar, a servant of Pharaoh. God blesses Joseph to the point where Potiphar turns everything over to him because he sees God is with him. And Potiphar's house flourishes. Potiphar's wife notices Joseph. You know the story, right? Tries to sleep with him. He resists. She makes up lies, false story about him. He is then thrown into prison. God rescues him out of prison after he was falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife. And what happens? He exalts him to the right hand of the king of Egypt, or to Pharaoh. And then, through Joseph, God saves Jacob and his sons from the severe famine that plagued the land at that time. Remember the story? Now, do you remember what I said about a type of Christ? Joseph is a classic type of Christ. Watch this, and I think you'd be kind of amazed. Because Stephen is using Joseph to present Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, to the council and to those in audience or to those in attendance. I want you to notice the similarities between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph says this, Acts 7, 9, The patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. Look about Jesus. The chief priests perceived that it was out of envy. And what did they do? Delivered him up. Who sold Jesus? Who gave him up? So Joseph, envy, and sold. Jesus, envy, and sold. Joseph was sold into slavery to Potiphar. He was falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife and put into prison. Do you know how Jesus got captured and put into prison? By false accusation. In a mock trial, they brought forth false witnesses. You know the story. He's just like Joseph. Joseph eventually got out of prison and was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Jews delivered Jesus to the grave, but God took him out of the grave and exalted him to where? His right hand. So Joseph, again, is a picture of Jesus. Joseph found the lowest kind of humility 
in becoming a slave, but was lifted to the loftiest exaltation. Jesus Christ found the lowest kind of humility in becoming a man. He was exalted to the highest place of honor. Joseph, again, is a picture of Jesus, a type of Christ. Joseph, rejected by Israel, and I say Israel, Jacob was renamed Israel. He was rejected by Jacob's descendants, his brothers, which makes up Israel, the nation of Israel. He was rejected by Israel, but was accepted by Gentiles in Egypt. Jesus, rejected by the nation of Israel, turned and found his church among who? The Gentiles. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction. And our fathers, the patriarchs, could find no food. Following the rejection of their leader, when they sold Joseph to Egypt, a famine came upon Israel. Do you know what happened to Israel when they rejected Jesus Christ? They fell into a spiritual famine. The famine is a type of Israel's blindness today. We see it right here. Remember this? Lest you be wise in your conceits, I want to understand this mystery. This is Paul writing. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Why is there a hardening that's come upon Israel? The nation of Israel, the Jews. Because they rejected their Messiah. They rejected their Redeemer. Just like Joseph's brothers rejected him. Their Redeemer. Redeemer from an earthly famine. Verses 12 and 13. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Watch this. Joseph revealed himself to his brothers at their second visit. That's why I had us read the story, Shannon and others. They didn't recognize him during his first visit. Joseph revealed himself to them at second visit. When is Jesus going to be made known to Israel? At his first coming? No. He was rejected at his first coming. So when is Jesus going to be made known to Israel? At his second coming. So the first time he, Jesus, and Joseph were rejected. And what? Sold for envy. At the second time, they were accepted. Verse 14, And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Everybody came that made up the nation of Israel at that time. It was 75 people. Do you know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of the fact that at Jesus' second coming, when he is revealed, who's going to be saved? All Israel. See this? In this way, all Israel will be saved. So you see the similarities there, right? Did you guys ever know that? We were to connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I remember learning this from my Old Testament professor, Dr. Richard Pratt. It was just totally eye-opening to see that you know, the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. But everything in the Old Testament points to the New Testament and to a Messiah where it finds its fulfillment. Now, up until this point, Stephen has masterfully showed the council in the audience 
through the history of the nation of Israel, the following. And I want you to see this. This is what he showed them. That their fathers, the patriarchs, whom they held in high esteem, blasphemed, when I say blasphemed, they envied, hated, and rejected that which God had called sacred, Joseph. He was going to be their redeemer. Therefore, the fathers were against God. And despite their rebellion against God, he would offer salvation to them from a terrible famine through the one they blasphemed, Joseph. So I want to ask you a question. Do you see now what Stephen is doing in his sermon? And this is the point. And you're probably going to want to take a picture of this if you want to, to kind of get where we're going. Because it will tie the entire sermon together. We just don't have enough time this morning. It's this. Stephen is establishing that as far back as the very formation of Israel, there was rebellion against the purposes of God through one Redeemer. You follow me? Are you with me so far? I need to know because I know that this is pretty deep. Which is why I have to break this down, because it is just way too much. It would be like, as I was described to me, open your mouth, I'm going to put up a fire hose and turn the fire hose on. It's just way too much information here. But I want you to appreciate what's going on here. Because who had the Jews just rejected? Jesus, their Redeemer. Exactly. And Stephen is basically saying to them that the rebellion, it's continuing. In their time and their rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In one way, through this bold sermon, Stephen is saying, nothing has changed with you guys. And I can only imagine... That this time in Stephen's sermon, that there were some in the council that were beginning to connect the dots. And their blood was slowly beginning to boil. They were already personally convicted about killing Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, it says this, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Now watch this. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They knew they had murdered Jesus. And so Stephen is crafting this sermon, his sermon, that's going to reach its climax or its apex in this, these two verses right here. I want to give you the end because it will tie in with the beginning. And then we'll go through it next week, the rest of the sermon. He says this, after talking about Moses, defending himself against blaspheming Moses, blaspheming the temple, and blaspheming the law. He's going to go right into this. You stiff-necked people. God bless Stephen. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, 
Which, who would that have been amongst other people in their time? John the Baptist, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Let me break this down for you real quickly here. This is what the Old Testament says about people with stiff necks. So Proverbs 29.1, He who is often reproved, yet stiff in his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. In other words, you get in trouble a lot. You're being disciplined. You're not learning because you're stiffening the neck. You're going to suddenly be broken and be beyond healing. In the case of Israel, their resistance, their bitterness, their unbelief was like a hard neck. What does a hard neck not do? You've done it this morning. I've asked you, I do every Sunday, which is what? Would you bow your head with me? A stiff neck will not bow in submission. This is what he's saying there. You refuse to bow to God. You're stiff-necked people. Then he says this, and this is the reason why I mentioned circumcision. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. That was the absolute curse of all curses, to call them uncircumcised. Because, again, it was a mark of Jewishness. Stephen is saying, you have a physical circumcision, yet inside you are what? Uncircumcised. You are full of corruption. You know what you are? You're religious, and you're corrupt inside. You're fake. You're circumcised outwardly, Inside, you're uncircumcised. Obviously, what matters is not physical circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision of the heart, which in translated means a transformed life. They were born again. They were different. But that wasn't their case. And so he says, as your fathers did, so do you. And this is his major point. He's got to show that what their fathers did, and we just went over that with the story of Joseph, right? What they did before, so that Stephen can now say to them, the audience and the council, so do you. You're just like these fathers. In this sermon, he's done that through the life of Joseph. And if the council did not get this point earlier, they certainly would have by verse 51. I mean, he is pulling no punches. They got the message loud and clear in this verse. Now, I'm going to close with this. There are some lessons to be learned from Stephen's sermon for us. This includes everybody, but I think it's particularly applicable to those of us in our adult Sunday school class. Is that you need to be prepared to share the reason for your hope. This was not planned by Stephen to be taken captive and a prisoner. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who ask you for a reason for the hope that it is in you. Number two, you need to share your faith 
boldly. Did you know this? That the Greek word, and I can't even say it, it's like 15,000 words here. It's like, that means to speak boldly. And it's always, always, always used in the New Testament in connection with speaking the gospel. That is how it is to be presented, boldly. And boy, did Stephen not model that? Paul talked about how he, to Thessalonians, and how he was mistreated. And the coming to you was not in vain, he said, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So again, it was boldly preached, even in, in the midst of opposition. Number three, understand your audience. I want you to understand, Stephen crafted a sermon on the spot, spirit-led, that was relatable to his audience, and he didn't water down the message. I think such a bold speech to that audience, under those highly volatile circumstances, that was going to get a response, for sure. Which means you've got to know your message. The fourth point. Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit, we know that, to witness effectively about Jesus Christ. As I said this morning, I'll say it again, the Holy Spirit did not supernaturally bring this message to Stephen. The Holy Spirit brought out of Stephen what was already inside him. And that came because we know that he was part of the group that was devoted to these spiritual disciplines. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. They meditated, all of that. It was within him. Number five, just trust the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance what to say in that moment. Remember John fourteen twenty six, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Next week, and this is the application point, is to boldly share your faith, but next week we'll talk about another type of Christ. And we'll talk about the law, we'll talk about the temple and all that, and we'll finish up this chapter. Moses is another type of Christ. He is another deliverer, another redeemer. And was he accepted by his people? No. Let's pray. Well, as we bow our heads, we don't want to be a stiff-necked people. (laughs) As the worship team comes up for our last song, we want to thank you for the testimony of Stephen. I know that it was you who was working in conjunction with him in his obedience, and you so empowered him and used him in such a mighty and powerful way. And I know Stephen had no idea that you were going to use him to impact so many people. But it serves to us as a hope that if we are simply obedient to share our faith, boldly, that you can use it to change the world. We're simply called to be faithful. You bring the results. We thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.